The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the 23rd of July 2019 and um, the topic for our Taisho this evening um, is the end of life choice bill. Um, this is something that was suggested me, to me um, by somebody and um, I'm always open to suggestions. I may not get around to it straight away but if you have suggestions for Taisho topics please do let me know. Um, but this one um, since we just recently did Jukai, the precepts, seemed like this would be a good topic to look at in terms of how it relates to um, the precepts, especially the first one, not to kill, but to cherish all life. Um, people probably know that this bill recently had its second reading. Um, this was after um, its first reading in December of 2017, and then it went to um, the Justice Select Committee um, and uh, 39,000 odd submissions, a little bit over 39,000 submissions were received on this bill so obviously it's something that people feel strongly about. And um, the committee in its report said that of the submissions that had a discernible view one way or the other on this bill, um, around 90% were opposed to to it. Um, the aim of the bill, and this appears in its kind of preamble, is uh, to give people with a terminal illness or a grievous and irremediable medical condition the option to request assisted dying. And what assisted dying means is um, um, essentially a lethal dose of a drug. Um, either administered by, by a doctor or possibly self-administered. Um, and the, and it's, it adds here that the this lethal dose of a drug is given to relieve his or her suffering by hastening death. And um, what's meant by terminal illness is that one is likely to die within six months. Um, and then there's the, also these other, other sort of things will qualify you if you're in a state of advanced state of irreversible decline or incapability or an unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner which the patient considers tolerable. You have to be over 18 um, and you have to be able to understand what it means to to ask for uh, assisted dying, and that that you will die when you when you're assisted in this. So um, it's it's fairly straightforward, you would think, but it's a very very complex issue. Um, the the bill, as it appears on the on the government website, um, has a good summary of the submissions. Um, that were made, um, and it's, it's, I found it interesting and revealing to read through the summary. I didn't have time to um, obviously look at all 39,159 <laughs> submissions, but it was interesting to look and see that um, the different groups that, that, uh, that um, put forward submissions and, and, and how they what they were concerned about and what they spoke about. Of, the, of doctors, mostly they didn't support there being this possibility of, of assisted um, suicide or euthanasia. <coughs> euthanasia. Um, they felt strongly that their, their obligation was to preserve life and they were concerned that if, if doctors were empowered in this way, it would, it would erode the, the doctor-patient relationship, which is built on trust. Um, some doctors came out and just said it's, it's unethical. And 
felt that if we it was if this was legalized then it could tr contribute to normalizing suicide in society another concern the doctors had was was the uncertainty of of predicting how long someone was going to live and that they felt that this would be a very onerous heavy responsibility a weighty thing to have to do because um, it could mean somebody um, could uh, that would be a cause of their, of their dying to say that they were only going to live for another six months and I guess doctors see that sometimes the predictions are wrong and um, we'll see this too in some of the in some of the, the material we're going to look at. There were, however, some doctors who supported the bill um, on the grounds of compassion. That they they said that they'd witnessed people in terrible pain, hadn't been able to help them, and and would not themselves want to be in such a situation. And that there were some uh, illnesses, some conditions which they would hate to have to live with. Um, another group of, of um, submitters was um, hospices and um, palliative care physicians. Um, people will probably know what palliative care is. It's, it's a, a specialization for end-of-life care which is no longer trying to heroically um, preserve a, a person's life but rather is looking at ways to really to make the most of um, each day um, just just working with with the symptoms rather than than trying to affect some kind of a um, a uh, cure at a, at a point where it's clear that that the die the kind of the dying process has um, unfolding but actually palliative care doesn't just have to be for people who are dying it can also be very helpful alongside regular treatment in terms of just looking at the whole person and this is one of the ways in which palliative care is different from regular medical care in that it it consciously has um, I think it's five different kind of aspects that it looks at not just the physical health but also emotional spiritual social and cultural well-being so all, all of these things are dealt with in, in, in palliative care and um, those coming from that that field express quite a lot of concern over the pos the pressure that vulnerable people would be under if euthanasia or assisted dying or whatever you like to call it was a possibility um, there's the danger of of being co coerced by by unscrupulous family members um, but also just that people at, at the last stages of their life often feel like they're a burden and so they they may um, possibly be um, inclined to um, end their lives sooner in order to not be a burden on their family or not being an expense. So um, once that, that becomes a possibility then it could hang over some people. One of the other the points that the, the palliative care folks um, said was that they felt that that good quality end-of-life care precludes the need for euthanasia. That really people wanting to uh, end their lives is, is a sign of, of the failure in a sense, the failure of the care that they're getting, that they should, they should come to that point. Um, in uh, Rishi Kaplow's book, The Zen of Living and Dying, he has has a, um, a chapter which which discusses um, suicide and euthanasia, and um, he quotes both a hospice patient here and a hospice doctor. 
he writes that because of the success of hospices in fostering growth in life's final stage so not just in a sense not just um, treating the body but seeing the seeing the whole person and seeing the 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 the, the, the dying process as a spiritual one and so therefore fostering spiritual growth even though the body is dying So in part because of their success in doing this, this fostering of growth, and in part because of their success in controlling symptoms, hospices take away much of the energy from the debate about euthanasia. One strong-minded patient at St. Christopher's Hospice told author Sandol Stoddard, hospices should be everywhere. All this talk about euthanasia is absolute nonsense. Well-meaning, of course, and I do sympathize, but the fact is, you don't have to kill people to make them comfortable. <laughs> you don't have to kill people to make them comfortable. And I guess that the 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 um, the, the Buddhist perspective um, on this was is that um, actually we. Killing people or, or, or hastening death, ending our lives um, in a, you know, sooner than, than would happen if things took their natural course, um, doesn't uh, relieve the suffering that it tends to. If, um, it, from a Buddhist point of view, um, the suffering will end when the when uh, the karma that causes that suffering has played itself out, and not before. So it's um, it's it's mistaken to um, to hold that um, that suffering does that suffering. Uh, can be can be um, alleviated simply by by um, destroying the body. It's pointless. It doesn't lead to any kind of actual release. And then our British hospice director, um, Dr. Richard Lamberton, um, said this. If anyone really wants euthanasia, he must have pretty poor doctors and nurses. It is not that the question of euthanasia is right or wrong, desirable or repugnant, practical or unworkable. It is just that it is irrelevant. We as doctors have a duty so to care for patients that they never ask to be killed off. Dying is still a part of living. In this period, a person may learn some of his, some of her life's his or her life's most important lessons. So this this is his perspective on this this topic, that 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 our dying our dying is a part of our living, and a very important part. Endings endings matter, and um, this 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 ending of our life, this end of life, is. Um, a time when all kinds of things are possible, which which may not be possible sooner. I hear it um, again and again about um, reconciliation that happens in, in between people at the end of life. Conversations which couldn't be had earlier happen at this time, when when um, the prospect of the end, the, this this end in sight um, helps us to get in touch with what is really important to us, um, prompts us to seek to, to forgiveness or give forgiveness to uh, people close to us.
um, I'm going to be reading some passages from um, a book called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Um, Gawande is a, um, a general surgeon in the United States and also a very fine writer. And I really recommend that uh, people to read this book. It's mostly about, about um, sickness, old age and death. It's, that's that's really its themes, and and how we navigate these these, uh, and it's got some some very helpful um, stories that we can't we can't go into all the stories in this book, but um, stories of um, how um, people he has encountered have navigated the process of of aging and dying and in one part he he explores something um, we might think is quite sort of uh, counterintuitive um, different studies comparing people who were um, enrolled in, in hospice programs compared with people who weren't. Um, and uh, you would think, okay, if I'm going into hospice, that means I'm going to, I'm going to just, um, not going to be treated for my illness, so, uh, my life will be shorter. But what they actually discovered that was that um, people who had gone into to the hospice program actually um, suffered less and lived longer than the people who weren't. Some lived up to 25% longer. He writes, like many other people, I had believed that hospice care hastens death because patients forego hospital treatments and are allowed high-dose narcotics to combat pain, but multiple studies find otherwise. In one, researchers followed 4,493 Medicare patients with either terminal cancer or end-stage congestive heart failure. Curiously, for some conditions, hospice care seemed to extend survival. He goes into very, the various lengths of extension for the different diseases. Then he, then he finishes by saying, the, the lesson seems almost zen. You live longer only when you stop trying to live longer. But what, what um, the, the, the sort of common theme across these different studies is that um, just having uh, a focus of somebody um, to talk to about one's not only one's spiritual but also that the, the, the not only physical rather but also spiritual um, concerns in the last months makes a difference And the questions that need to be asked get 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 asked. Um, simple things like, do you want to be resuscitated if your heart stops, or do you want um, different kinds of aggressive t treatments or antibiotics, or so on. And that's another thing that came up in the the submissions to the bill was that. Um, it's called the end of life choice bill but in fact within the current framework um, there is quite a lot of choice already um, any patient can refuse medical treatment can say 
I don't want to I don't want to go through chemotherapy or surgery or I don't want antibiotics if I get um, pneumonia uh, I don't want I don't want nutrition or hydration um, and of course if you don't eat or drink eventually you'll um, die and people always have this option there's there's um, a story told of an of an old master who felt that he was no longer useful to his his um, his students or the monks in the temple and uh, he stopped stopped eating and, dr and drinking and then the, the monks came to him and said master please please don't die now it's the middle of winter and the ground's going to be very hard for us for us to dig your grave and also it's a busy season for uh, ceremonies and if you have to have your funeral as well it's going to be very inconvenient <laughs> and and so he quietly resumed eating and drinking until it was a more convenient time and then stopped again and eventually toppled over and died the um, other groups who, who participated in the submissions one was um, uh, disabled people and groups and they they felt some of them felt that that um, inclusion of them in the in the uh, bill sent a message that the lives of disabled people were less valuable and not worth living so that was on one side and then on the other side there were disabled people who wanted to have the option to end their lives and this was noticeable in reading the submissions that quite often quite diametrically opposite views would be presented um, so it seems to send people to extremes um, another discussion that was mentioned in the submissions was um, what does it mean to have a natural death and um, a point was made in this argument that um, modern medicine now extends our lives um, so much that most deaths can no longer be considered natural um, regardless of whether um, assisted dying comes into play but I think it's important to to kind of realize that um, actively helping somebody to die is different from uh, from palliative care and um, the, the 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 theme that the in palliative care is not to hasten and not to um, uh, prevent death so it's a kind of um, kind of neutrality in the middle there if we if we go to our our precept for guidance it's not to kill but to cherish all, all life um, from a literal point of view if we take that as the, as the baseline for these, these precepts so first of all or just just to read it literally then that would suggest um, there isn't a place for assisted dying that under no circumstances is it um, advisable to kill ourselves or to help someone else to do so but you have to remember these aren't commandments these precepts aren't commandments they are they are descriptions of you could say of enlightened behavior and again here behind that would be the sense that that it's because death is not an end that that um, that suicide doesn't really make sense in terms of avoiding of suffering But as uh, many of you know, there is more than one, one way to interpret each of the precepts. And the second perspective that we take on these, or 
or ways of interpreting them is is more more meta metaphorical. What's the spirit of the precept? And in one way, this is expressed in the the teachings on the precept is that that the the Mahayana perspective is is to re refrain from killing the mind of compassion and reverence. So it's more emphasizing that second half of the two parts of the precept, not just not to kill, but to cherish all life. And then it becomes much less obvious what the right thing to do is, especially talking about it in the abstract as we are. Because what do we mean by life when we say to cherish all life? And this is the, well, something that Atul Gawande explores in his book, is um, the ways in which medicine can go so far to treat you that it end, you end up sort of aborting the death process and um, dying in a hospital surrounded by strangers and fluorescent lights and with very little um, kind of control over the process. And I wonder if this isn't one of the reasons why this issue raises so much concern among people and so much interest, because nowadays um, going into into a hospital, we often um, is a sense of of very little autonomy. Um, not so much human dignity and certainly not much control about what goes on. And if we think of these as being values, of being values and of being what life is about, to have autonomy and dignity and control over, over what's going on. Um, so one, one way of, of uh, looking at this is to, to, to think about what, what a good dying process, what, a, a, what kind of a, a, uh, an end of life uh, we would want to have and how we, can, how we could um, communicate what we wish to others so that when we reach that point um, there's some clarity around it. And Gawande points out that, that um, regular doctors, um, if you don't count the, the palliative care physicians and possibly the, the geriatricians, are really not trained to to ha have much aware awareness of this. They just want to come in and fix things. Um, he also points out um, that. For most of human history, um, people have people have um, um, lived a fairly on fairly even keel, and then at the end of their life, um, they would get some kind of illness, and then probably fairly quickly uh, die. And so, if you looked at a graph of that process, you'd have you'd have a, a straight line and then sort of pretty much something that looks like a cliff going down to, to your death. And um, he says, life and death would putter along nicely, not a problem in the world. Then illness would hit and the bottom would drop out like a trapdoor. And um, he, com he compares this to the way it was for his, his Indian grandmother who at, at around the age of 30 got a fatal case of malaria and and um, died pretty quickly. So that was that for most of our history. That was that was the um, the kind of trajectory because there wasn't the medical understanding to to um, cure people of things. But now um, it's it's very different for for those of us in 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 uh, places with um, good health systems. It's much more like, um, he says, like a hilly road down the mountain. So um, an illness, 
uh, some some medical treatment coming back up a bit and then going along for a while another illness and then like this down in a kind of a diagonal down to to to, to death and um, each time uh, one, once one is in this this kind of process each time there's a recovery from a from a serious um, illness um, debility different kinds of things that come up um, and there's a recovery but one doesn't get right back to where one what one was before but there's there's a kind of um, um, a, 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 a slower descent like you were going through foothills up and down and up and down and down to the bottom he says the road can have vertiginous dot drops but also long patches of recovered ground we may not be able to stave off the damage but we can stave off death we have drugs fluids surgery intensive care units to get people through they enter the hospital looking terrible and some of them some of what we can do to make them look does make them look worse but just when it looks like they've breathed their last, they rally. We make it possible for them to make it home, weaker and more impaired though. They never return to their previous baseline. And this, this is, uh, I went through this with my parents, where there would be a serious health crisis and, and a, um, stay, stay in hospital, and then there would be a re return. But it didn't, the, each time it happened, there would be greater frailty uh, uh, following. But he, he, he uh, points out the way in which um, this, this shift um, has, has um, kind of prompted us to see, th see the course of human life differently. He says, a modern scientific capability has profoundly altered the course of human life. People live longer and better than at any other time in history. But scientific advances have turned the processes of aging and dying into medical experiences, matters to be managed by healthcare professionals. And we in the medical world have proved alarmingly unprepared for it. This reality has largely been hidden. In the final phases of life, because and as the final phases of life become less familiar to people and apparently as recently as 1945 most deaths even in the, in the states occurred at home but by the 1980s just 17 percent did so this this um this institutional setting in which we we um we so so often lose our, our autonomy and our dignity is is something quite quite recent he says you don't have to spend much time with the elderly or those with terminal illness to see how often medicine fails the people it is supposed to help the waning days of our lives are given over to treatments that addle our brains and sap our bodies for a sliver's chance of benefit. They are spent in institutions, nursing homes and intensive care units where regimented, anonymous routines cut us off from all the things that matter to us in life. Our reluctance to honestly examine the experience of aging and dying has increased the harm we inflict on people and denied them the basic comforts they most need. Lacking a coherent view of how people might live successfully all the way to their very end, we have allowed our fates to be controlled by the imperatives of medicine, technology, and strangers. Lacking a coherent view about, of how people might live successfully all the way to their very end. So th this is really what's, what's demanded of us, is to, to try and um, become more aware of, of, of how we might successfully live successfully all the way to the very end in spite of losing our beauty that goes first strength, eyesight, 
hearing, um, our mental acuity, then, then our mobility, all of, all of these, these things which um, disperse, which, which unravel eventually. So we, we need to um, we need um, to equip ourselves to um, uh, face these losses um, to we need to in a, in a really in a sense practice losing. Um, Gawande draws one other graph also, which is um, if is the graph of, of what our life would look like if we if we um, uh, don't follow that first pattern pattern of, of a series of of illnesses, but just sort of um, a, a f a f fade away. He says in old age. Um, if we die of old age, no single disease leads us to the end. The culprit is just the accumulated crumbling of one's bodily systems while medicine carries out its maintenance measures and patch jobs. And, and so, so we can have a long, slow fade, he suggests. And then he writes, the progress, the progress of medicine and public health has been an incredible boon. People get to live longer, healthier, more productive lives than ever before. Yet traveling along these altered paths, we regard living in the downhill stretches with a kind of embarrassment. We need help, often for long periods of time, and regard that as a, that as a weakness rather than as the new normal and expected state of affairs. We're always trotting out some story of a 97-year-old who runs marathons as if such cases were not miracles of biological luck, but reasonable expectations for all. Then, when our bodies fail to live up to this fantasy, we feel as if we somehow have something to apologize for. Those of us in medicine don't help, for we often regard the patient on the downhill as uninteresting unless he or she has a discrete problem we can fix. In a sense, the advances of modern medicine have given us two revolutions. We've undergone a biological transformation of the course of our lives and also a cultural transformation of how we think about that course. There's a, there's a, very, there's a revolutionary kind of um, approach that's used in rest homes called the Eden Alternative, um, which addresses different um, the needs of, of um, of elderly folks, and, and it's, I think it's uselessness, boredom, and um, I can't remember the third one. There's one, there's one home that, that, that practices in Auckland, Elizabeth Knox. But one of the points that the founder of this, this system um, makes is he says, we often say something like to an old person, oh, it's so, so amazing that you're still driving. And um, you know you're 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 92 and you're still driving, and that's really a that's that's the that's got behind it the value system of a young person, where where such things as autonomy, um, or uh, mobility, are valued, but for for that person for that 92 year old, it's it's. Um, pretty much certain that at some point that person, um, and this is us when we're 92, won't be able to drive. 
either either will at a certain point as, as we lose our faculties we'll stop driving or at some point we'll drop dead and then we won't be driving so it's a it's a sort of it's it's imposing on on that dying process a value um, that is sort of ignoring that the process that the person is in it's it's there is this 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 um, As, um, we could say um, downhill trajectory, and it, it seems that our um, our success in um, looking after our, our physical selves has meant that there's been this sh this shift into into not really valuing the process itself, the 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 the, the aging and dying process itself. Well, our time is nearly up, so just one more um, reading from this, which brings us back to the topic of um, uh, euthanasia-assisted suicide. This is Atul Gawande again. I am leery of suggesting the idea that endings are controllable. No one ever really has control. Physics and biology and accident ultimately have their way in our lives. But the point is that we are not helpless either. Courage is the strength to recognize both realities. We have room to act, to shape our stories. Though as time goes on, it is within narrower and narrower confines. And I think that's something you notice if you, if you um, um, go through the dying process with with a parent or parents that there there is a, a kind of a narrowing of um, the world as as they get more frail um, and in some ways that's it's also um, a greater focus in, on what's important a few conclusions become clear when we understand this that our most cruel failure in how we treat the sick and the aged is the failure to recognize that they have priorities beyond merely being safe and living longer, that the chance to shape one's story is essential to sustaining meaning in life, that we have opportunity to refashion our institutions, our culture and our conversations in ways that transform the possibilities for the last chapters of everybody's lives. In everybody, inevitably, the question arises of how far those possibilities should extend at the very end, whether the logic of sustaining people's autonomy and control requires helping them to accelerate their own demise if they wish to. Assisted suicide has become the term of art, though advocates prefer the euphemism death with dignity. We clearly already recognize some form of this right when we allow people to refuse food or water or medications and treatments, even when the momentum of medicine fights against it. We accelerate a person's demise every time we remove someone from an artificial respirator or artificial feeding. After some resistance, cardiologists now accept that patients have the right to have their doctors turn off their pacemaker, the artificial pacing of their heart, if they want it. We also recognize the necessity of allowing doses of our narcotics and sedatives that reduce pain and discomfort, even if they may knowingly speed death. And I think many of us will, will, will recognize that this is, this is something that happens already, kind of quietly. Um, but if somebody's very distressed in their, in their dying process, then, then um, they're given a little bit more more morphine, and that may compromise their breathing slightly sooner rather than later. All proponents seek is the ability for suffering people to obtain a prescription for the same kind of medications, only this time to let them hasten the timing of their death. We are running up against the difficulty of maintaining a coherent philosophical 
philosophical distinction between giving people the right to stop external or artificial processes that prolong their lives and giving them the right to stop the natural internal processes that do so. At root, the debate is about what mistakes we fear most, the mistake of prolonging suffering or the mistake of shortening valued life. We stop the healthy from committing suicide because we recognize that their psychic suffering is often temporary. We believe that with help, the remembering self will later see matters differently than the experiencing self. And indeed, only a minority of people saved from suicide make a repeated attempt. The vast majority eventually report being glad to be alive. But for the terminally ill who face suffering that we know will increase, only the stone-hearted can be unsympathetic. At the same time, I fear what happens when we expand the terrain of medical practice to include actively assisting people with speeding their death. I am less worried about abuse of these powers than I am about dependence on them. Proponents have crafted the authority to be tightly circumscribed to avoid error and misuse, and you see this in the way that our bill, our bill is constructed. In places that allow physicians to write lethal prescriptions, countries like the Netherlands, Belgium and Switzerland, and states like Oregon, Washington and Vermont, they can do so only for terminally ill adults who face unbearable suffering, who make repeated requests on separate occasions, who are certified not to be acting out of depression or other mental illness, and who have a second physician confirming they meet the criteria. Nonetheless, the larger culture invariably determines how such authority is employed. In the Netherlands, for instance, the system has existed for decades, faced no serious opposition, and significantly grown in use. But the fact that by 2012, one in 35 Dutch people sought assisted suicide at their death is not a measure of success. It is a measure of failure. Our ultimate goal, after all, is not a good death, but a good life to the very end. The Dutch have been slower than others to develop palliative care programs that might provide for it. One reason, perhaps, is that their system of assisted death may have reinforced beliefs that reducing suffering and improving lives through other means is not feasible when one becomes debilitated or seriously ill. Certainly, suffering at the end of the life is sometimes unavoidable and unbearable, and helping people end their misery may be necessary. Given the opportunity, I would support laws to provide these kinds of prescriptions to people. About half don't even use their prescription. They are just reassured to know that they can have this control if they need to, this control if they need to. But we damage entire societies if we let providing this capability divert us from improving the lives of the ill. Assisted living is far harder than assisted death, but its possibilities are far greater as well. And I think that, that brings us back to our precept, uh, not to kill but to cherish all life. We cherish things that are treasures. Um, and there, there is, there is um, this opportunity um, in, in the end of our lives of, of, of so much uh, spiritual growth, so much healing, that um, that is something really, really worth cherishing. So, um, really nothing more to say but perhaps to to leave people with some questions and maybe we can we can talk about these a little bit and, and while we have have tea um, what are your concerns as you as you age and possibly become frail and infirm or dependent or in serious pain what's what will be important to you as you go through that process. Do you know what the priorities of people close to you are? Have you talked about it with them?
how do you feel about this this end of life choice bill? Um, can you can you appreciate um, uh, people's concerns around autonomy and um, dignity and uh, choice? What can we do to um, ensure that people have uh, uh, the ability to make choices in, that can be made? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attend. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz